I feel like commenting systems are just built into whatever blogging or publishing platform I'm using. So how is commenting software a business model? How'd you build a business around what I guess we could call comments as a service? The problem that we ended up solving for media companies was a was a platform solution. So it did a bunch of things that simplified the way they looked at this. So if you were to break it down in features, they were all kind of like very incremental features. Like, hey, we took care of spam really well. Hey, we made the login process very seamless. Hey, if you want integration in social, we did that really well. Toxic trolling, here's a bunch of administrative tools that would track users across properties so that you can go and find whether or not someone's been sincere. The layering of these things ended up addressing what I thought was the bigger point for a lot of these like big media companies, which is like community management or general like social engagement as a business function was woefully underappreciated. And whose job was that? Editorial? They don't want any hands on that. Was that marketing? That was tough. Was it the folks who were in charge of monetization, ad sales? Well, that's really where engagement really factors in. So like the responsible hats to speak to community engagement and social oversight at that time, 10 plus years ago, it really just highlighted like, hey, we know this is really important, but I don't know whose job this is. And I really just want someone else to take care of it. Wanting someone else to take care of it, (laughs) believe it or not, those are like magic words to an entrepreneur because some of the best businesses are built around things people can do on their own, but they'd rather pay someone else to do it better and faster. For example, my lawn. Now, I know it's important to keep my lawn looking good, and yeah, I can cut grass and pull weeds on my own, but would I like to spend hours every weekend doing that, or would I rather pay someone else to do it so I can spend those precious few hours with my family? The latter, obviously. And that's the same phenomenon our guest on this episode of Webmasters was taking advantage of. He is Daniel Ha, founder of Discuss, that's D-I-S-Q-U-S. It's the commenting plugin for websites. It might not seem like a big business until you remember that for lots of big media companies, having a powerful and robust commenting system can keep users engaged with their websites longer, which means more ad revenue. But managing an engaged community is a lot harder than it looks on websites getting millions of page views every day. So rather than deal with it internally, why not just hire someone else to do it for them? And that's exactly what Daniel was offering. Are you ready to discuss the story? Let's get dialed in. Hello, 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 and welcome to Webmasters. This is the podcast that explores the history of internet entrepreneurship by talking with some of the digital age's most impactful innovators. I'm your host, Aaron Dinan. I'm a serial entrepreneur, and I teach entrepreneurship at Duke University. These days, a lot of my work focuses on the evolution of social media and digital communities, which is why I was excited to talk with this episode's guest. He is Daniel Ha, and he's one of the co-founders of Discuss, the cross-website commenting platform that, at its peak, was on many of the world's most popular websites. As you're going to hear Daniel explain, comment sections on websites are a lot like social media communities. In fact, Discuss was probably one of the world's largest and most popular social networks, albeit a distributed version of one. But before we learn more about it, we need to pause for a moment so I can tell you more about this podcast sponsor. 
Webmasters is being brought to you with the help and support of our sponsor, Latonas. Latonas is a boutique mergers and acquisitions broker. They help people buy and sell cash flow positive internet businesses and digital assets. That includes content websites like all the popular ones that use and discuss. It also includes things like e-commerce stores, SaaS apps, Amazon FBAs, domain portfolios, and any other type of online work-from-anywhere internet business. If you've got one of those and you're thinking of selling it, be sure to contact the team at Latonas. They're expert brokers combined for decades of experience, and they'll be able to help you get your business sold for a great price. Or if you're hoping to buy an internet business, Latonas can help you too. Just head on over to their website where you'll find all the profitable internet businesses they're currently helping to sell. That website is, of course, latonas.com, L-A-T-O-N-A-S.com. Before I get too deep into discussing, um, discuss, that's going to get a little confusing. Uh, anyway, it occurs to me that lots of people have used it, but not everyone might realize they've used it or really just how ubiquitous it was for a time. Uh, basically, there was a moment in internet history when if you were commenting on a major media website, you were likely doing so via discuss. So let's take a moment to let our guest, Daniel, explain what Discuss was, and technically still is, since it's still around, though not as ubiquitous as it once was. Sure, yeah. Discuss is a copy I started with Jason. Um, you know, formerly, you know, wrote first line of code probably at the end of 2007, made that a company, made that a startup in 2008, ran it for, you know, almost a decade before um, it was acquired in 2017. Discuss is a large online discussion network. Um, it started out as a software platform for online publishers, namely blogs, websites, entertainment websites, to power commenting at the end of their articles. So when you hit CNN or Fox News, if you choose to read an article, you hit the bottom of it, you'll see a bunch of people arguing in the comments. Um, for a number of years, that was largely um, our fault in doing. Uh, you know, that's been around as a mechanic of the, of the web and the internet forever. We sort of built a software solution that would help publishers get more out of it and bridge them between where they were and how they were getting into the world of social. So, you know, we started at a time in which Facebook was relatively new. Twitter was new. And media companies were a little bit unsure about how those platforms or distribution channels were going to be friends or slash allies, or they're going to be complete competitors to what they're doing. I think they still struggle with that sometimes. But largely speaking, most media companies were understandably very protective of their audiences. Um, what they had was not just the content. It was the fact that they were getting a certain slice of humanity to rally around what they wrote and what they were producing and what they put out there. And the more of that that was coming from a social media platform like Facebook and out of their controls, the more insecure they were and the more understandably uh, scared of what the future may look like. So Discuss in, in some ways bridged that. We were a fully integrated social platform that worked with a lot of social providers at the same time. Sort of our anchor to the solution was that these media companies would host and own the audiences that came to their properties. So if you were a CNN reader, you engaged on CNN.com, you use their apps, their stuff, rather than interacting with their content via Facebook then, or I guess now, whatever, Reddit slash TikTok. When I think back on the hundred or so people we've heard from here on Webmasters, I can't remember anyone quite like Daniel. 
For starters, and somewhat depressingly, Daniel's actually a few years younger than me. I bring this up because I, I think he might actually be the youngest entrepreneur I've interviewed for this podcast. That's relevant because Daniel's also one of the first people I've interviewed, if not the first person I interviewed, who built a startup just because building a startup seemed like a cool thing to do when he was a kid. This rationale for launching a company represents a sort of generational shift that began taking place in the wake of the dot-com bust and subsequent rise of Web 2.0. The early 2000s were the time when building startups became, for lack of a better word, cool. It was something to aspire to just for the sake of doing it. That's something Daniel discussed when I spoke with him. Well, I grew up, um, I'm in San Francisco right now. I grew up about 50 miles south of here, so in a town called Milpitas, which is sort of sandwiched in between San Jose and Mountain View, where um, Google is. It's next to uh, uh, Palo Alto, where a number of tech companies are. So I grew up in the Bay Area. Uh, my dad worked in finance and for tech companies, um, but number one thing about him for me growing up was that he was a big uh, sort of early adopter, tinkerer. He just liked to like have new tech, whether that's a VCR or a... 2x CD writer, um, anything that he can just kind of show off to his family and say, hey, this is a cool new thing, check it out. And part of that is me sitting in the car with my family, driving up 101 or uh, driving up 280 and uh, seeing billboards with the name of tech companies. And um, for me, I guess it's sort of like growing up in Hollywood and seeing movie stars and seeing like billboards of like a new TV show that's about to pilot and kind of being immersed in that industry. I was immersed around um, technology companies and for some reason, maybe it was the logo or the font they used. It always got me kind of excited to know that they were around the corner where I was growing up. And I got into computers like a lot of, um, I guess, young people or uh, I was young at some point in my life uh, through video games. So probably four years old when I received um, Super Mario Brothers, that's my first video game. And um, a few years after that, I realized that uh, computers can play video games. And my dad would bring home his computer from work at the time. I think it was a Apple II and then eventually a Mac. I don't even remember what it had on there, but it would have the most bare bones sort of goofy game. I think one of them was like a little parachute guy that dropped from a helicopter. He had to catch him in a uh, little cart. So little little fun games like that. Um, I was enamored by it. I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. And what was your first introduction to the internet and World Wide Web? Uh, how'd you discover it? Probably in fourth or fifth grade. So that would have been, I don't know, eight, nine years old when I used the internet for the first time on a computer in my dad's office. And I naturally went to the first sort of thing I could think of. Um, having the world's information at my fingertips. I typed in playboy.com. As luck would have it, uh, the computer froze at that exact moment. And um, my dad came out of his office to go, you know, uh, I was sort of hanging out with him at his office on a Saturday afternoon. So he's like, all right, let's go home. So he comes to find me on one of the cubicles, sort of playing on the computers because people left them unlocked at the time. And so he finds me sitting there with a frozen screen with Playboy.com half rendered in a, uh, I think it was a Netscape browser. Anyway, that was uh, the first and end of my entrepreneurship journey. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, if it makes you feel any better, I'm sure you weren't the only kid that happened to. Um... And uh, out of curiosity, were your parents particularly entrepreneurial or was it just living in the Bay Area that spurred your entrepreneurial interests? You know, in retrospect, there's a lot of like very entrepreneurial things about my parents. Neither of them were 
traditional entrepreneurs that never started a business. Both of them from Vietnam when they were, my dad, I think when he was 18, my mom a little bit later when she was in her early 20s. So they essentially grew up here, early adulthood, sort of the tail end of the Vietnam War. And a lot of the sort of Vietnamese American community where I was growing up, um, a lot of them were entrepreneurs. They didn't really have a path to a career that could grow. So a lot of them started restaurants, nail shops, um, you know, convenience stores, things like that. So that was sort of around me. And But I, I only look at this in retrospect because I grew up essentially as an American kid, taking things for granted and really think about you know, where my family came from or entrepreneurship in that light. I think combined with being a tinkerer from an early age and being inspired by sort of the tech companies around me, the number one thing that really made me an entrepreneur was the idea of having influence and an impact in the things that I was building and doing. And I sort of liken it to what I said earlier about, you know, growing up around like in Hollywood, being around performers, um, seeing them and seeing like the notoriety and the impact they have on culture. For me, it was uh, seeing companies like Adobe, knowing what that product is and being excited that other people recognize that name. And the idea of me building something that other people might use was always kind of exciting to me, especially growing up with the internet, because, you know, it was sort of a lawless Wild West land where you were building tools and websites. And if other people knew about it and they used it, it was just the most badass thing. If it was an open source project and I use it and I came across someone in the IRC channel and they said, hey man, I actually worked on that project or I authored it. For me, that was like meeting a celebrity, even though it was some 30 year old guy in Lithuania, but it was the most exciting thing to me. Again, I just want to pause for a moment here and think about how Daniel is describing the entrepreneurial world. To him, it's a lot like Hollywood, which I think is a great comparison. The early 2000s is really when entrepreneurship became aspirational to a broader population of young people. It's when the idea of startup CEOs being their own type of glamorous celebrity really started to emerge, and people dropped everything and began moving west to realize their tech dreams rather than just their movie star dreams. Even though Daniel already lived in the Bay Area, he was basically one of those aspirational young entrepreneurs, eventually even dropping out of college to focus full-time on building companies. I was very, very bad at school. <laughs> and uh, I had good grades, um, decent grades, actually, not good. But um, school was something I struggled with only because, um, and this is still a problem, which is that I can't see the outcomes of what I'm doing or if it doesn't seem like it's an exciting prospect that I can sit and daydream about, then I lose interest in it. And I would have to create these like weird mental frameworks for me to motivate myself to go accomplish something. And I learned early on in my early teens when I was building software, and I can touch upon some building stuff with friends, that there was like a natural motivation in it. Like the idea of like releasing software and imagining that, you know, my crush from school or my friends from school would like celebrate me like I'm in a parade. That never happened, by the way. But the idea of like building software that would be like lauded and used by other people was just like really motivating for me. Turns out my crush never cared. Turns out no one actually uh, celebrates that. <laughs> but I got bit by a bug and um, I found what motivates me and it was a fun journey. Did that journey begin with Discuss or did you build other companies before that? So Discuss is the company I started, my first company and um, really my first job. And I started out with my friend Jason, who I met when we were 13. So we were in this like small advanced math class in seventh grade. It was held in the morning before school started. And there's only like a handful of us of like probably the least popular, least charismatic kids in the school is, is how I'll characterize that room. 
and uh, we connected because we just love StarCraft. Um, we were really in love with this game, and it was a new school going from 6th to 7th grade, so I didn't have a lot of friends, but I met the first guy I had met in my childhood who was into the internet in the same way I was. And it's sort of weird to say being into the internet, it might sound like being into electricity today, but at the time... Being into that, I mean, that was a hobby in itself, right? Just the culture involved, the stories and lies you have to tell your parents to get more time on the internet, the sort of software you'd have to use to get access to stuff you shouldn't have access to. Later that year, you know, we were 13, we started quote-unquote partnering up, right? Basically just tinkering on stuff together. He's always been the smarter and more gifted programmer between the two of us. I spent most of my time, again, daydreaming about the parades. So we would share ideas and work on stuff. The thing that we really latched onto was online communities. And we spent a bunch of time on IRC. IRC, Internet Relay Chat, sort of the, it looks like Slack, but not as nice <laughs> is how I'll characterize that. We were on a server for folks who do know IRC, FNAT, EFNAT, and we're part of a number of communities that were essentially pirating communities, just ripping and sharing files from music to unreleased movies to software and video games. Um, and if you wanted to be part of the crew, it was a gang of sorts. You had to have a job, a role. And my job was, as a 13-year-old, I can, couldn't do very much. I have access to any of the music and movies that I would go essentially steal and try to distribute. But my job was to manage the administrative list of all the logins of servers that we'd basically store these files on and then use that to distribute. And Jason was his role. He was a programmer in one of these communities. And we would uh, spend a bunch of time writing plugins for the IRC clients called Merck, M-I-R-C, and um, wrote software for our purposes, which was, uh, I don't know, nerdy, mischievous theft, I guess is what you call it, piracy. So we would write plugins for this uh, chat program, M-I-R-C, and distribute that to other folks who were into it. So that was one of the first things we did, and along the way, throughout Middle school and high school, we started a bunch of websites, um, a couple of which were MP3 websites. Around that time, this would have been right before 2000, so 98, 99. MP3s were all the rage. I think it even had like articles in the New York Times. That's like a, a new medium for music, right? And uh, we had create MP3 websites and basically try to distribute songs to our classmates through that. I was also on a newspaper class in school. And the first article I wrote, I had the technology column for that newspaper. And uh, the first thing I did was plug my MP3 website and try to drive traffic to it. <laughs> it was uh, my first assignment. I didn't actually reveal that it was my website, but uh, that's, that's how I used that class. From there, you know, we lost touch throughout most of high school until we ended up going to the same school together at UC Davis probably between San Francisco and Lake Tahoe, and both did computer science and engineering. I'll skip over a couple bits I can come back to, but essentially after about a year and a half, decided that um, studying computer science was not as fun as building shit on the web, and we dropped out and tried to see if this could be a job doing shit on the web. You mentioned IRC. Was that a huge influence on your decision to build Discuss? Uh, I mean, you were obviously very interested in threaded commenting and discussion platforms, right? Yeah, 
It's a really funny framing because that's exactly how we kind of talked about it for years, which is like, you know, we're in the business of like all these online personas communities. We're in the comments business, right? Like, what is that? The reason, you know, it started out as a product, very much a consumer product. And for us, me and Jason specifically, we um, we spent way too much time and way too much of our youths in online communities and understood like it being a culture in itself, the jokes used, the way people speak feverish sort of debates and sort of the obsession you would have on like what someone you responded to when they're going to respond to you and how ready you were for it none of this was actually even important or mattered to a lot of real life especially at the time but it was something that just sucked a lot of people in and for me shaped a lot of how i saw um the world i spent a lot of time in these online communities message boards forums if you're my age, so you would remember things like Fark or Slashdot, somethingawful.com. These online communities that created the first generation of memes and, uh, you know, went on to have outsized influence on basically a lot of how internet culture came to be, how software is created, and how people find each other online. For the record, I've got interviews with Drew Curtis of Fark.com and Rob Mulda of Slashdot. Those would be Webmasters episodes number 20 and 45, respectively, for those interested in checking them out. That was sort of always the cornerstone. And I was I was in love with a new product that had just come out right when I was about to drop out of school, which is Reddit. And I think I created my Reddit account in, I don't know, 2006, sort of early on. Love the product. It was sort of a, you know, a dig <laughs> at the time that was like way more catered to programmers and like tinkers and just a bunch of like nerdy people and everyone kind of spoke the same language. So it was fun. And it was sort of for me and Jason, we saw Reddit as like another entrant into the social world, but retains a lot of the culture and mechanics and dynamics of what we saw to be like the true working nucleus of online communities, these forums. And uh, Discuss was born out of the idea, like, you know, we want to build in the space, just like we were building plugins for the IRC client that we used a bunch. We wanted to build online community stuff, whether that was to augment Reddit, to bridge it with Dig. We did a bunch of variations in the online community space. And eventually what we landed on was a version, um, I don't even know what it did anymore, but it was some Frankenstein abomination that combined blogs and Facebook and Reddit. It did a bunch of stuff that we just wanted to use. And this was the start of how we met Y Combinator. And, and I could touch upon that story, but once we got to know Y Combinator and received some money from YC, you know, a lot of the feedback we got from the YC community, other founders that we met, like, this does too much. Like, I don't even know why I would find this. Like, why would I even choose to come to Discuss.com to use this? So we wanted to figure out, like, a hack. How do we get you to use this even though you don't want to? <laughs> like, how do we just incept to you? So we made it embeddable. We just wanted to make sure that any website you went to, it just already used Discuss. Like, hey, if you're not going to care, we're going to make you care. It just exists now. So we just spent a bunch of time hustling and calling up blogs. Like literally, I would email hundreds of blogs to say, hey, look, I'm doing this thing. What is it? It's comments. You already know what that is. You use them already. This is a little bit better in some ways. Don't worry about it too much. Just try it. It's free. And doing that, I ended up spreading to hundreds, thousands, and then eventually millions of sites, our pitch to them. 
got a little bit better, not by much, but a little bit better. And uh, we eventually kind of built solutions around that, that try to speak to a lot of the insecurities that bloggers, but then, you know, media companies would care about. But that was the genesis of why we even cared about online computers in the first place was from that angle, um, not from a media or digital media space. If anything, I still like I'm still learning that world of just media. It took many awkward meetings in giant conference rooms in New York City for me to feel that. But we were a consumer internet product first that ended up appealing to large media companies that spoke a very different language. And we sort of built a business around it that spoke to them. So can comments be a business? Eventually we figured it out. It took a long time for us to find out exactly where our voice was in that world. But yeah, certainly I think we're a case of very much a product-led growth and product-led approach to market where we built something first that we thought was really interesting. And then we found sort of the way it delivered value to a customer that would pay. Out of curiosity, what was the big sales pitch you made to your customers? Why were big media companies, I mean, companies as big as CNN, why were they willing to pay for someone else to handle their comments? What was the value provided by a better commenting experience? And how were you able to convey that value? Yeah, it totally depends on the company, but primarily it was the latter, which is like, hey, we know engagement is going to drive incremental revenue. We know that one of the biggest sore spots when we do a quarter recap is the fact that our engagement is dropping because of social platforms. How do we get them back on page? How do we recirculate them into other pages? How do we get them to download an app on this new thing called the App Store, right? And how do we drive them back to web properties where we can actually monetize them with our ads? So a lot of that was, I mean, the default way to address that is to build a team, hire engineers, and start to have a intelligent product leader around the space. But if you're a media company, you are losing really smart product people and losing really smart engineers to this new Web 2.0 resurgence. So a lot of them were looking for solutions that basically business people could understand and higher level editorial folks can really get behind. And we did a lot of our marketing just by giving away the software for free to small websites. Unfortunately, not this way anymore, but for a period of time at our peak, it was very tough to kind of hit a well-visited blog or a growing news website that wasn't using Discuss. And we would make our UI very distinctive, and the account you use on one site were persist across others, of course. So our marketing to these media companies was like, hey, look, you already have an account. Your visitors have an account. Here's what we can see about them. If you integrate our platform, you inherit a lot of those benefits. Now, what those benefits were and what they were inheriting depends on who's telling that story. But a lot of it is talking about, look, commenting and engagement is very important to those media properties. If you're going to outsource it, do it right with us. That's kind of an amazing story to go from being a couple buddies coding websites in middle school, high school, to college dropout, to Y Combinator, to selling a very public piece of software to some of the biggest media entities in the world. What would you attribute that success to? I mean, I realize it wasn't overnight success. I I just glossed over, what, uh, 15 years of hard work and effort in 15 seconds. Uh, But could you talk about the process of building Discuss and maybe how you think you got so successful with your first company? Because that's definitely unusual. I said this earlier, you know, Discuss, my first company and really my first job. I had done a couple technical engineering internships. I was just starting one when I ended up leaving that one and leaving uh, school to do this company. So a lot of 
what I was able to do with disgust, like all the good things I did and all the really, really bad things I did, I will attribute to me not knowing anything about anything, right? And some of that naivety was honestly some of the best assets I had. Just the idea, like, I don't even understand how I could fail. Like, why would I? Right. It seems ridiculous to think about, but I had so much conviction that no matter what I was going to do, it's just going to work out because I don't know, I was young and stupid, but it just felt like all the like naysayers like, oh, how about this? I'm like, man, you're just hating. <laughs> Even if it's just like a straight up, like very valid criticism, like, you know what? I'm just going to figure it out. And sometimes with entrepreneurship, having those blinders is very helpful. And obviously having those blinders can kill you, but survivorship bias sometimes. With Disgust, it, it definitely is a story of multiple chapters. And I feel like I've had multiple jobs within the same company and just different chapters because, you know, I get older, I gain a little bit of experience, I gain some wisdom, ended up hiring some amazing and smart people who even today, like I'm looking at some stuff people are doing now that I used to work with. And like, I can't believe they let me hire them and they would even entertain what I had said. But like some of that boldness comes from like not knowing anything and having multiple chapters in the company means that I was learning at different jobs and it felt like once a chapter was done, the next chapter was a completely different company, different product, different business model, different like way of approaching the business. Even looking back at it, a lot of it looks the same. But for me at that moment, it just felt different. You know, that's something I feel like a lot of young entrepreneurs don't fully understand or really appreciate about building startups. It's it's not just one job. It's more like a series of different jobs that constantly change and evolve alongside the startup. Could you talk a bit more about that? What were the different jobs along your journey of building Discuss? So in the beginning, I remember a feeling when it was just me and my co-founder, Jason, and we were planning for our seed round. I don't even know if I called it a seed round. It's just like raising money. I didn't even know what the path looked like. But I thought like, all right, we're going to build a certain point. We're going to raise some money. It's like American Idol. Like once they say we're going to Hollywood, we basically hire that producer and they're going to write the rest of our music album. We get our Kelly Clarkson number one hit single. We're set, right? Like I don't even need to code anymore. Like once we start get this going, we're on the right path. We just hire a bunch of people and we're going to do it. Didn't work out that way. I never wanted it to work out that way. I just thought like maybe that's how it worked. For the first couple of years, it was a huge grind. It was uh, coding, tons of coding. It was a ton of feeling extremely insecure about the pitch, reading what I had written, you know, in my own personal notes of like what this company is and why it exists, doubting it. And then by the time I went to sleep, being excited again, like, oh my God, this is amazing. I didn't change a word of what I wrote and being excited about it again, waking up and coding and, and doing it all over again. The second chapter, you know, starting to become real, thinking about what this business looked like. At the time, the startup culture, this was in the early, you know, late 2000s, early 2010s. At the time, I felt like the idea of talking about monetization for a lot of startups in the local ecosystem was almost felt like you were a MBA grifting, money-hungry person. Like, why are you thinking about monetization, right? You're here to change the world. You're building software that's going to change the way that people think about things. And so the second chapter was shifted to like, you know what? I'm a business operator. My job is to run a business. I got to start to learn the mechanics of what a business looks like. The first chapter was like me being in startup mode, the classical sort of late 2000s startup mode, which is like building fun internet products and trying to garner excitement around the ecosystem around me. And then the second chapter is like, you know what, this is a natural company. How do I think about the internal culture, the processes and being out there and describing this to actual customers in a way that would elevate us? 
That was the biggest chunk of my journey was to shift into that CEO mode, moving from a product builder to someone that could enable other people to do productive things. And then eventually we got to a really nice size, got profitable. A lot of my focus became simply like, uh, what is the lasting impact of what we're doing? And how are we going to fit into the story of the internet and startup ecosystems for the next number of years? We'd already hit it like we could always hit the next chapter. I felt like we were hitting a plateau when we were going. Got successful, um, knew this was going to be an M&A exit. We weren't going to get to an IPO, but you know. 100 plus people profitable. We were doing well with our growth, but didn't know what the next chapter was going to look like. So a lot of that chapter was just trying to figure out like, what is the legacy of this company? And what do I want to do next? How do we find the right exit for that? So that was a number of years. That was three, four years where that was top of mind and trying to figure out like where we played into the next inflection point of the web. You mentioned that Discuss wasn't going to have an IPO type of exit. Why was that? And once you realized it, how'd you start working toward an acquisition? Yeah, I don't know if I ever thought about it in those words uh, while in it. I've had a number of years kind of think back about it and talk about it. So it becomes more clear to me now. Uh, Day to day, it was mostly about more and more and more, right? Like, what is the goal of the company? It's to grow. How many employees do you want? More. How much money do you want? More. And that was sort of the path we're on. But looking back, right, we discussed was in the intersection between SaaS and we had a SaaS business model media. We did advertising and audience building and then digital media slash social, the way that our product worked. And in the mid-20-teens, there was a lot happening in that world. The transition from old media became new media already, and now it's, it was trying to become new, new media. And media is just one of those industries that transforms so quickly, yet always feels a little bit like a step behind and old. It might just because of the sort of steep history of how media companies in this country operate. But like at the same time, you know, we had this very contentious election cycle. This was sort of the lead up until Trump's nomination and then winning the election. So digital media, fake news, news media monetization, all that stuff was on the forefront of every one of our customers, our partners. And we were sort of wrapped into it, right? We dealt with a lot of the same burdens that a Twitter, for example, would uh, had to deal with without a lot of the sort of consumer and cultural sort of benefit recognition with it. We had to deal with so much when it came to fake news and sort of the toxicity that came from both sides arguing with each other. At some point, I realized that, you know what, I love, you know, this company, I love what we're doing, but man, if I were to do something else, it would not be in the intersection between these things. Like, it's becoming too much of a mental weight for me, personally. I would get constantly like really really nasty letters like i don't even know how they got my address but like mail to our office and to me directly talking about being involved in the downfall of humanity because of what social media was doing to national discourse just stuff like that and it's really fascinating to be part of but also realize like man if i was doing another company because i love building products it would not be doing this and that made me realize that you know what i've been doing this for a number of years Whatever outcome we're able to secure for the company, the idea is like, I want to use that plus my experiences to do something completely different, something new. But, you know, we were never like in a rush to do it. We were never pressured to do it from any angle. So when we got our first inbound M&A, well, our latest contemporary M&A inbound at the end of 2016, it was the first time we really brought it up to our investors saying, look, you know, we should look into this. They agreed. 
and then spent the majority of 2017 sort of with a brand new chapter in my job, which is to talk to companies about M&A. And we ended up not selling to that company that initially came to us, but unearthed a whole new sort of workflow and uh, world of what M&A looks like in software and media. And that was fascinating. Ended up talking to 30 plus companies, like real conversations who were interested in what we were doing and ended up selling to a company that was not part of the conversation until the very last moments. And uh, all the stories I hear about this path from acquisitions to M&A really crazy stories. It's still, you know, it doesn't prepare you for like some of the ups and downs that you know, we go through doing it. What was it like to sell your first company and, and really the only company you ever worked for and then move on from it? How does an entrepreneur move on from an experience like that? You know, ultimately when it ended, it was such a huge relief, was really happy by the outcome we got for the company. And for me, it meant that I was able to go and I was using Evernote at the time for all my notes. And I was able to go to this note file that had a creation date of, I think, 2009 <laughs> of like, it was called Startup Ideas. So it, was a, it was just a list of things that I would write down when I ever had a thought into this note. And it would just be constantly updated and synced to the cloud for posterity. And then I would come back to it like, all right, I can finally dig in and see what my ideas were. There were uh, 40-something ideas. They were all like, an idea might have like three bullet points or might have like one sentence. Some ideas were literally one word. <laughs> and I was like, I would remember what that meant. I had no idea what that meant. I went through every single one of those right afterwards. I'm like, man, these ideas are shit. <laughs> I should spend some time really thinking about what I want to do next. But yeah, that was essentially how we sold the company and spent the next year after that, like really insecure about what my identity was. Like, hey, I'm a startup founder. What's my startup? What am I building? going through those ideas and trying to figure out exactly what else could do next. And well, that's still actually a bit of an open question for Daniel. You see, as of this recording, he's advising and investing in other startups while trying to find his next opportunity. Considering what he accomplished with his first one, I'm excited to see what's coming. In the meantime, you can keep tabs on what he's up to by following Daniel on Twitter. He's at Daniel Ha. This podcast is on Twitter too, of course. We're at Webmasters Pod, and I'm on Twitter at Aaron Dinnan. That's A-A-R-O-N-D-I-N-I-N. You can also find lots more content about startups, tech, and entrepreneurship over on my website. It's AaronDinnan.com. I want to thank Daniel Ha for taking the time to join us and share his story of building Discuss. I also want to thank our audio engineer, Ryan Higgs, for his help pulling together the episode. And I want to thank our sponsor, Latonas, for their support. Remember, if you're interested in buying or selling an internet business, be sure to visit latonas.com. Lastly, a big thanks to all of you for listening. I didn't quite realize when I started pulling together this episode that it would be our 100th episode. That is a lot of stories about the history of the web and web entrepreneurship. I'm sure there are a lot more to tell. We'll keep trying to tell them so long as all of you keep listening. You can do that by subscribing to Webmasters on your podcasting app of choice so you get the next episode as soon as it's released. Until then, well, it's time for me to sign off. Goodbye. <laughs>